Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. We are in the midst of a series called Sex by Design, as Kyle mentioned, and this morning, I wanted to start our time off by talking about pineapples. Now, anyone know how much this pineapple costs, ballpark? Somebody said 10, six, somebody said two. This pineapple costs $3. Now, the price of a pineapple today is certainly not reflective of the price of pineapples historically. Here's why I say that. Well, the pineapple was discovered by Christopher Columbus in 1492 when he sailed the ocean blue and he discovered this fruit that was described by members of his crew as like a large pine cone that if you cut open on the inside has this delicious delicate fruit it was grown in south america and europe had never seen anything like it so it was brought back to europe and it was given to the king and it widespread or became incredibly widespread in its popularity and fame and was incredibly valuable because they couldn't grow due to the nature of pineapples the climate of europe you couldn't grow them so having a pineapple was something that only the elite of elite had only the luxury or it was a luxury that only the the wealthy in society had, and pineapples at one point sold in the 1600s and 1700s for what today is equivalent of $8,000. Even in the United States, pineapples were sold on record for what today is equivalent of $8,000. There's pictures actually of royalty that were, or paintings of royalty that were done that included pineapples because it was such a sign of like, look how amazing I am as a king. Here's a king from the 1600s, I believe it's King George, King Charles II presented with a pineapple inside to show, look how amazing I am and I even have this pineapple. It was such a rare thing and a status symbol that there were companies created for those in society that were wealthy but not wealthy enough to buy a pineapple where you could rent for a night a pineapple. You're having the in-laws over, you wanna impress them and show, look, I've arrived in society, you can rent a pineapple, put it right on the dinner table. You usually didn't eat the pineapple because it was such a luxury and you wanted to keep it as long as possible to show off to the world around us. I mean, it's funny, imagine transporting somebody from the 1600s to today and taking them to Costco, <laughs> what their mind would be thinking. They would see a pile of pineapples everywhere and go, oh my gosh, they'd be loading up their cart to go out of, honey, we're rich, we have all of these pineapples. Now today, that's no longer the case. Why? Because you know, the advancement in technology and farming, pineapples are no longer rare and exclusive and something that was uh, only the elite had or only certain people had and of enormous value, they're common. They're the opposite of that because it's easy to come by. Now, what does it have to do with the topic we're gonna to cover today? Well, in some ways, it's a, a real parallel for that idea of God's design for sex. It was meant to be this thing that was exclusive, it was exotic, it was protected, it was incredibly valuable. The opposite of common, the opposite of just something that you take place in or take part in with anyone out there, but you protected it because it was so extraordinarily valuable. Now, pineapples, to go back to that, Nothing changed about the pineapple from its value of being 8,000 to $3. In other words, it's still the same fruit. What changed? Well, our perspective. 
The same is true as it relates to sex. It's not that sex is any less valuable just because it's more common and not as protected. It hasn't changed. What's changed is our perspective. Now, the key difference between those two analogies is the consequences for devaluing pineapples is trivial. But the consequences for devaluing and increasingly or making increasingly common sex is really catastrophic. And so we're going to open into this conversation and lean in because a lot of the deepest pain in this room is related to sexual intimacy. A lot of the deepest shame in many of our stories is related to sexual intimacy. And I want to be abundantly clear up front, I have no goal in trying to make anyone feel shame or guilt. In fact, I think if Jesus was here, you wouldn't feel or hear that. But as a pastor and as we look at God's word, there's an incredible design that I think God has given us for sexual intimacy and how in living according to that, there's tremendous life. So this will apply to all of us, whether we're single or married. And let me further say, no matter what your story, your sexual story, your sexual baggage, your past, there is hope, there is healing, and there is help in Christ. And I hope that we discover that as we move forward through this passage. Sex is an interesting topic. It's taught in health class where they teach the mechanics and the biological aspects of it. So I'm really not gonna go deep into that. Hopefully everyone here understands how babies are made and how all the things fit together. But where health class fails is it doesn't teach the emotional, the spiritual, the mental aspects of sex. But the good news is God does. And so we're gonna look at his word Culture around us doesn't really give great examples of sex. If anything, they just give exaggerations of what it looks like, whether it's through TV shows or through pornography or through even the music that we listen to. I mean, some of the music that we listen to, the best hits, most romantic songs, they're just ridiculous. They're not great examples, they're exaggerations. I mean, I love Boyz II Men as much as the next guy, but I'll make, all through the night, I'll make love to you. Has anyone in Boyz II Men ever had sex? That's exhausting, it's ridiculous. <laughs> And God's word doesn't give us exaggerations. It gives us a beautiful, amazing design in a culture that has so much confusion and so much pain around this. So we're gonna be in Genesis chapter two. We're gonna look at the very first time that God introduces the idea of sex. And we're gonna look at how it has a purpose, how it has permanence, and then a further aspect of how God designed it. So this is in Genesis chapter two, the very first time sex is mentioned in the Bible. Genesis chapter two, verse 24 and 25. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united, talking about sex, or glued to his wife. And they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no Shame. So it's just talking about Adam. Adam's created. Eve is then created from his side and God brings them together. Adam just bursts out in his own boys to men song and says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And God then says, this is why a man will leave his father and mother, be fastened or united, which is his euphemism for sex to his wife and the two will become one flesh. In this passage, we see sex by design has purpose. Sex by design has purpose. It was marital. It was spiritual. It was physical and it was not shameful. It was marital 
and that it was a seal on the marriage. Man entering into woman represented the union of marriage. It's hard, honestly, to biblically separate these ideas as it relates to sex and marriage. What do I mean? This idea of sex being so equivalent and equated with marriage is all throughout the Old Testament. You know what the penalty for extramarital sex was? It was death, stoning. If you, had, if you were married and you had sex with someone who was not your spouse in the Old Testament, the penalty was death. You know what the penalty for premarital sex was? Marriage. In other words, Exodus 22 says, hey, if two people are, you know, young lovebirds end up sleeping together, you don't stone them, congrats, you're married. In other words, hey, buddy, you were having a one-night stand, welcome to the family. Now pay the bride price. It's literally what Exodus 22 says. It, it wasn't the consequence of death. It was, hey, now congrats, that one-night stand, now you're married to her. Now that'll be two cattle, three rams, and eight goats for the bride price. In fact, Legally today in the state of Texas and state of Florida and all throughout the country, there are laws that if you marry someone and you don't consummate the marriage, you qualify. If you don't have sex, you qualify for not a, and you don't want to be married anymore and you haven't consummated, you qualify not for divorce, but for an annulment because the marriage was not consummated. So it was marital, it was physical and that the man enters into the woman. It was spiritual and that God out of that creates one flesh of the two of them and then it was not shameful. It's a beautiful design. At God's original design, there was no walk of shame the next morning or that evening. There was no morning after. It was one man and one woman. Now, as we continue to journey through God's word, I wanna just suggest, as we look at his design, what the Bible and what scripture really is. Because often we come at it like a rule book when God's word is more a instruction manual or gives us the instructions from the designer on how to handle things like sex. As it relates to sex, in other words, it's not a rule book of God saying, no, no, no. It's a owner's manual giving you instructions on how to use this thing that he designed and he created. Everyone in this room, if you drove a car, your car at one point had a owner's manual. And in that owner's manual, that's given you not because Toyota wants to control your behavior, but to give you the information on how to best utilize this car. And if you don't follow the owner's manual on, hey, you need to get an oil change every so often. You need to uh, change out the carburetor at X number of miles. If you decide, you know what? I'm not really gonna go based on what the owner's manual thinks. I'm gonna go on instinct and what I feel is right for me. You could do that all day long, but eventually your oil is going to destroy, or if you don't follow the manual, it's going to have real consequences on your car. And the same is true as it relates to scripture. It's God as a loving creator saying, I want you to thrive sexually. And I'm giving you these, not as a rule book, but as an owner's manual to lead you to life. And if you're thinking, yeah, as it relates to a car, that's silly. Yeah, sex is way different than a car. It's way more important than a car. Not taking care of a car and ending up in a car wreck will break your bones and tear your flesh. Not following God's design and instructions as it relates to sex will break your heart and tears at your soul. And God loves you. And he gave this amazing design for sex to be followed to experience life. The second thing that is a part of the purpose of sex is procreation. We see that in the very first commandment God gives, Genesis 1:28. God blessed them, said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. The very first command God gives is make babies. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs> that sex was given for procreation. 
We're told Adam and his wife did exactly that in Genesis chapter four, verse one, it says this, Adam made love to his wife, Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man, she said. I mean, notice just the beautiful imagery. Man is made in the image of God. We're made in the image of the Trinity. It is in a loving coming together in love and being united together, these two coming together. And out of an overflow of that love, new life comes forward. Something made in the image of Adam is what chapter five says, which his name was Seth, comes forward. It reflects the Trinity, that God, love in and of himself, at an overflow of love, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, overflows into the creation of man in his own image. And in the same way, man and woman come together out of an overflow of that love in sex, a new creation is brought forward. So we see there's purpose and that it's procreation. We also see purpose and that God made it on purpose pleasurable. Proverbs chapter five says this, speaking about sex, drink water from your own well. What do you mean, Solomon? Share your love only with your wife. Why would you spill the water of your springs into the streets and have sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Verse 19, this is somebody's new memory verse. She's a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. The same word for captivated is translated intoxicated in other places and in other translations of this. That as I said a few weeks ago, long before Beyonce came out with drunken love, Solomon had already written that. Would you always be drunk in love with your wife? Let her breasts and her body always satisfy you. That God created, I want you to think about this. He didn't have to make sex pleasurable. God created and designed it to be intensely pleasurable. He created the parts. He made them work the way that they do. He created and formed it to be of tremendous pleasure. The idea that God is approved, honestly, is a joke. That's like saying, or God is anti-sex is a joke. That's like saying Elon Musk is anti-Tesla just because he says you should drive it on a road. Uh, the fact that you provided any instructions to this makes you anti-Tesla. That's absurd. God is not anti-sex. He's pro-sex. He created it and he created it to be intensely pleasurable. There's an entire book devoted to sexual intimacy called Song of Solomon. It's in the Old Testament. It was a book that Hebrew boys were not allowed to read until they reached the age of 30 if they were not married because it was so erotic in its language. God created it to be for procreation and for pleasure when two men or two people come together. Now, let me give a side note as it relates to sexual intimacy. The scripture says that there's a really wide fairway or wide lane for what is permissible in terms of marriage. It's not ever to be coercive, but in terms of sex, God is very pro one man, one woman, having union together, enjoying one another and loving and serving, as we're gonna talk about in a second, serving one another in sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. Because the designer created it very purposefully. We also see in this passage, as it talks about, hey, two become one flesh, that sex by design has permanence. One flesh, it's, it's, it's referring to sex as it's sticky. Pardon the pun. It was created to be that way. It was created on purpose to unite people together, to bring a sense of permanence in that relationship of one man and one woman coming together. In fact, science now confirms this. Here, here's a uh, neurological hormone called oxytocin. This is the love hormone. This hormone flows 
at a rate in the normal average female body, 10 times that of a man. It's a hormone that is responsible for feelings of warmth, affection, bonding, intimacy, which is why women are generally speaking nicer than men. But this flows at a rate 10 times more through women, except on one occasion where it surges in a man 10 times the average amount and reaches that of a female. That one occasion where this floods the male brain is that of sex, which is why during sexual intimacy, people will blurt out out of nowhere almost, hey, I think I love you because they're having a brain flooded with his hormone. God created it that way. And that is the hormone that bonds people together. They first discovered this hormone when they were looking into studying into the birthing process and women had this flood of a hormone that would happen when they had a child. It led to them encouraging something called skin to skin. To skin. If you've ever had a baby, you know this because it attaches the mother to the child because they're having a flood of oxytocin. It was a hormone that is the bonding hormone. One sex therapist described it this way. You think whenever we have intercourse, we create involuntarily chemical commitments. Even if you think you're having a no strings attached hookup, in reality, you're creating a chemical bond, whether you mean to or not. Another psychiatrist said, you might say we were designed to bond. The world says sex is just physical and God created sex way beyond that. Sex is powerful and that it has a sense of permanence. This is what would lead the Apostle Paul to write as it relates to sexuality to the church in Corinth. You don't understand what happens when you have sex together. There's a bond that is taking place. It was created and designed that way. In other words, in 1 Corinthians, Paul would thousands of years later write to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was incredibly sexualized. If, if you think, hey, way back then, that's so outdated. The, the church in Corinth makes Vegas put to shame on Vegas. It was called the sexual capital of the ancient world. They had the temple of Aphrodite there. It was uh, regular to sleep with prostitutes. In fact, Corinth, the Corinthians, that was a slang term in the first century for a loose woman. And in other words, if your mom wanted to insult the girl you were dating, she would say, honey, you're dating a Corinthian because it was slang for someone who slept around or for a prostitute. And Paul writes to that church and the church had a lot of confusion around sexuality, like a lot of people today do. And he writes and he brings up, don't you understand sex has permanence? When you sleep with a prostitute, you're not just relieving an urge, urge you are creating a sense of permanence. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6, and the context is Paul was saying, you say the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And so that led them to going, hey, you know, when I get hungry, I eat something. When I get horny, I have sex with a prostitute. And Paul says, you don't understand sex. Verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute, that's talking about sex, is one with her in the body? For it is said, and then he quotes Genesis, the two shall become one flesh. He says, don't you understand that when you have sex with someone, you are becoming one flesh with that person, whether or not you intended to. Sex is not just physical. There's something much deeper taking place. Sex has permanence. Sex is powerful which is why people often are unable to ever forget the first person they slept with because it has a permanence. It was created beautifully, designed that way. Eugene Peterson translates this verse this way. He says this in the message version, there's more to sex than mere skin to skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As it is written in scripture, the two become one. 
Paul would go on to say sex has like its own category, that God designed sex. In the context of marriage, this is beautiful, that man and woman would continually be united together and glued together because sex is permanence. It was created, the same word is translated glued. It's to stick and come together. And sex was to be this thing that you come together and spiritually, emotionally, physically, when you have sex with that person, you are bonded to that person. But when they're just a casual one night stand and you rip that apart, something happens. It's like a little piece of you goes with them and a little piece of them comes with you. You could see if you looked closer at this, every time that you rip it off, this piece of tape, it's a little bit that comes with it. And eventually over time, it gets less sticky. What's interesting is science has now proven what God's word has said, which is if that happens over and over and over, it becomes less sticky. Sex wasn't designed to be something that takes place over and over and over with various different people, but over and over and over with one specific person. What do I say that the Institute of, the Medical Institute for Sexual Health has discovered that casual sex leads to a decrease in the neurochemical production of oxytocin and interferes with pair bonding going forward. The more sex that you have casually, the lower levels of oxytocin are produced. In other words, the more that you sleep with different, various different people, the body begins to quite literally numb the bonding chemical, that it decreases that because sex wasn't designed that way. And again, I'm not here to throw shade or guilt or make anyone feel shame. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But God in his amazing, beautiful design created this thing where man and woman would come together and in the context of marriage be united and glued together. Paul says this after those passages. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. I'm going to come back to verse 19, but he says, run from sexual immorality. What is that? That's any sex outside of the context of marriage. It's sexting, oral sex, masturbation, anal sex, straight sex, gay sex, any sex outside of the context of marriage. Why does God say that? Because he's some prude? No, because he designed it. And because he loves you, he cares about you, wants you to experience the incredible gift that sex is in the context of marriage, because outside of it, it leads to incredible pain. It leads to like I said, some of the deepest pain in the room because it's more than just physical. I was watching, or I'm sorry, I was reading a book a few years ago and the book was talking about the mating patterns of sharks, as you would expect. And in it, it talked about how a male shark, the way that they breed with female sharks is that they bite on the outside of the female shark in order to hold on and have sexual intercourse. In fact, the female shark's skin is two times thicker than the male because they were designed for that to take place. There's no other way for them to stick together. So the male shark bites on the outside of the female shark and has sex. And the writer had a line of, when it comes to sharks, sex means scars. And the truth is, it's not just when it comes to sharks. When it comes to people, sex often means scars. Some of the deepest hurts Weight, regrets that are in this room, in my life, are sexual in nature. What do I mean? I'm, 
think of just friends over the years. I think of a friend who was molested by a family member, Scar. Family that disintegrated after the dad's sexual sin was exposed, Scar. A friend who got pregnant after casually hooking up with a guy, had an abortion, and now grieves every year on the anniversary of that decision, Scar. Friend who was raped in her home by a stranger, Scar. Friend who struggles or whose wife struggles with sexual intimacy because of the shame of her past and the memories it brings up, Scar. Think of a pastor who was exposed to pornography in junior high in a hotel with some other boys from the church youth group and battled pornography and shame for the next nine years. That's my Scar. And the good news as believers, we know there is healing and help in Christ. There's no story God cannot rewrite, that God cannot heal, God cannot use to be a testimony, but it's incredibly apparent. A lot of the most traumatic things in our life connect to this idea. So of course God would say it's in the context of marriage, this beautiful gift is to take place because outside of it, there can be tremendous pain that's brought forward. Maybe in the room, one of the barriers to intimacy with you, maybe to married people, maybe one of the barriers to intimacy is there is a wound. It's not even a scar yet. There's some trauma and sexual trauma that you haven't healed from. And it's creating a barrier of intimacy. And one of the best things you can do is to receive God's healing in that area by opening up and sharing with other believers. We wanna help. We want to see marriages thrive here. We want you to feel heard and understood and know that it wasn't, the abuse that happened was not your fault and you didn't deserve it. But it is now your responsibility to heal from it. And there is healing and hope in Christ. In fact, if that's a part of your story, we'd love to serve and care for you in that way. If you'll email pastoralcare at citybridgechurch.org, pastoralcare at citybridgechurch.org, we would love to care and help. And one of the greatest gifts for those of us who are married is to heal from any trauma that's there. And single people is to protect and understand God's boundary is that not there to rip you off, but to bring you and give you life. I gotta keep moving because there's a lot of content. This is further, let me just bust two more myths on this point. Two more myths and then one call. This is further, let me give the call first. Why parents, you've gotta teach your kids about God's amazing design. Now you need to be the person that's introducing to God's design of a penis going into a vagina and creating children and the pleasure and God, all of that being in only the context of marriage. That's what God is so for. So that he's not learning his theology from another fifth grader, but he's learning it from you. And it is better to err on the side of being too early than too late with the age of your children and introducing them and teaching them. There's a resource called Passport to Purity that we highly recommend just as a platform to have these conversations. I was talking with Kyle this week and uh, that idea of, hey, when did you have the talk is such a bad way of framing it. It's when are you having the talks that it should be an ongoing, regular conversation as godly parents telling and leading our kids God's beautiful, amazing design for sex. Let me speak now to the single people really quickly and then we'll move. I wanna bust two myths. One is it relates to that of uh, safe sex that, Curriculum in schools teaches, hey, just if you're gonna do sex, have safe sex. There is no such thing as safe sex outside of the context of marriage. A condom can protect you from an STD. It cannot protect you from the soul mingling that takes place because there's not a condom big enough to protect your soul. God designed sex to be the deepest intimacy expression between one man. There is no such thing as safe sex outside of the context of marriage. 
The two, so number two myth is sexual compatibility. Because you may be thinking, well, I'm going to save sex for marriage. How do I know if we're sexually compatible? Let me answer that. Ready? If you are a man and you have a penis and she is a woman and she has a vagina, you are sexually compatible. Congratulations. <laughs> you may be going, well, how do I know? We may not enjoy it. Even if you did enjoy it, that is a horrible reason for the basis of a relationship. Oh man, we enjoy sex together, so we should get married. That's a terrible reason to get married. We enjoy sex. There are billions of people on the planet who you would enjoy sex with, who have the parts that could bring you to orgasm. That's not a good reason to get sex. And maybe you're thinking sexual compatibility, but how do we know our drives are equal? You know your drive changes over time, right? Your, your hormonal levels right now are not gonna be the same throughout your entire life. Her drives are gonna change, your drives are gonna change. In other words, what they are today, they will not always be. That when, as you get older, they'll change. When she gets pregnant, they'll change. When there's the dark winter after the baby is delivered for those three months, they change. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're sexually at the same level of drive, that's not going to last. Okay, sex has permanence, sex has purpose, and then finally, and maybe most uniquely, sex, by design, is sacrificial. God designed it to be sacrificial. Here's what I mean. Man and woman come together, God's beautiful design in the most intimate way possible, within the security of a covenant, I'm not going anywhere. I am here for this relationship, the safety and security, without shame, without comparison, without regret. That was God's original design. And a part of that design is that it would be sacrificial, that men and women, especially as followers of Jesus, we learn in 1 Corinthians, I'm gonna read that in a second, would be sacrificial servants to our spouse, sexually serve one another, romantically, intimately, pursuing and caring for one another. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse three. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual intimacy or relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And Paul says, hey, you are to sacrificially serve your spouse when it comes to sex and intimacy. I remember the first time I was confronted with the just differences and the difference in wiring intentionally that God created between women and men. And this is not always the case for men or women, but we were going through merge, it is for our case. Uh, 12 years ago, we were going through merge, which is the premarital ministry that we have here, would highly encourage if you're seriously dating. And one of the weeks we covered sex and expectations, the sex expectations. And they had a question on there of, hey, what is your expectations for sexual intimacy in marriage that both of you would answer? And honestly, I think we should change the way that you answer this question because it was multiple choice. So it was like one to two times, three to four times, and it had up to seven or seven plus times. And I remember reading it thinking, wait, is that on the table? Seven plus times? Look, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to shoot myself short here. If that's, if that's available, man, I'm going to go with that one. And everyone at the table and the table leaders and my wife being like, what is wrong with you? And just seeing <laughs> the differences in drives. Now, why would God not make, generally speaking, in every marriage, there's a higher desire spouse sexually and a lower desire spouse. It's not always the man, but it's always the case. Why would God make it that way? 
Further, as his design, why would men and women, as in terms of wiring, are vastly different? Because they were designed that way. Here's what I mean. Women, again, generally speaking, a majority of women have an feel aroused through an emotional connection. An emotional connection provides a gateway towards arousal and sexual connection. Men, on the flip side, are much more visual. So men, in terms of serving sacrificially your husband, wearing something nice or wearing nothing at all. You're gonna serve your husband. Women, on the other side, generally speaking, are much more emotionally connected and require and desire an emotional connection. Why would God make them that way? Because in order for sex to take place, it would require, in his design, sacrificing and serving and caring for one another. That the wife would die to her preferences and seek to serve her husband. And the husband would die to his preferences and seek to emotionally serve and care for his wife. It was designed that way. Because sex by design was designed to be sacrificial. Why further do we know that? Because sex by design was designed to involve love. What does love require? Sacrifice. God so loved the world that he what? He gave, he didn't take. Sex by design is to be something where each party gives. They don't take. They're not there to take. Let me preference and give a real quick side note here in case somebody takes this verse and goes home. If you're the higher desire spouse, the thing that you should not do with this verse is to go home and go, Honey, uh, you heard the pastor. Let's uh, get this, let's serve the Lord here. And I just want to be a man of God. And I know you want to be a woman of God. And so we're doing the Lord's work and let's, uh, this is what is appropriate. That would be probably the worst thing because here's what that is. That's not love, that's taking. And God designed sex to be sacrificial. He says that the body is not your own. So just as much as, as the husband could say, hey, your body's not your own. She could, so we should have sex. The wife could say, your body's not your own. So you should take me on a date. The same is true. God designed this beautiful thing for each spouse to come together, to die to their own needs. His beautiful opposite wiring that they would care for one another the husband would emotionally, relationally pursue, asking his wife, how was her heart, taking out the trash? How was your day, caring for her? Quite honestly, in studying and preparing for this message, God so convicted me. My wife is a better servant than I am. She is way better at this and caring for me than I am and pursuing. And that's a shame. And I don't want that to be the case. I want her to feel more love than any person out there. And maybe like me, the takeaway for you is to go, how do I emotionally and spiritually care and pursue my wife? This compliment that God has given me. And for wives, how do I pursue and care for my children? Or my children. (laughs) Yes, for your children too. My (laughs) husband. God designed almost like the crockpot versus microwave analogy of women, generally speaking, are more crockpot and men are a microwave. They're ready to go. You know, I'm, I'm always ready. And he designed it that way beautifully on purpose so that love could happen, because love sacrifices. It's there to give, not take. Finally, let me just give a quick application, and then I'm gonna wrap up. This is for married people. Keep having sex. Prioritize being united together, serving and sacrificing, romantically pursuing, and keep having sex. Now, you're single, they're laughing because when you're single, you're like, wait, what? You, you have to actually try? Yeah, because life and things, and over time, it, it gets exhausting. How, how many times a week should you have sex? 
Ready? I'm not going to give you an answer because every couple's different. Whatever the answer is should be, hey, I'm serving and caring and prioritizing uh, my, my spouse. I, w- I will give you one number. The average married couple has sex one time a week. We don't want to be average. <laughs> you do with that whatever you want. But keep prioritizing, pursuing, and loving your spouse. You're the only legitimate source of sexual intimacy on the planet. What a gift. You're the only legitimate source of romance on the planet. What a gift and what a responsibility. So keep prioritizing, keep pursuing your spouse. I'd encourage you to talk about it in community groups. Not in the specifics, but to lean in and go, how's intimacy going in terms of your marriage? It's one of the most important, the number one reason people get divorced is infidelity, is sexual. And the enemy's of course going after that. And so one way that we protect against that is by opening up and talking about it in community, talking about, man, how's it going? How are you pursuing your wife? How is intimacy going for you and your husband? So in conclusion, sex by design has purpose. It has permanence. And it was designed to be sacrificial. Now, I want to close, and I want to come back to a verse we read. Because this subject matter often creates so much guilt And one of the reasons is because we we think, man, based on my sexual history, that is reflective of my value or I'm damaged goods. I'm no longer as valuable, which is just a lie. It's certainly not how God sees it. I I bought a mattress a few years ago and the mattress had 180 day. If you want to return it, it will take it back, sleep on it. And at any point, if you're not satisfied, you can return it. We got the mattress, slept on it, and it just wasn't for us. And so I didn't know if they would actually take it back. I called them up, said, we want to return the mattress. And they said, perfect. If you'll just donate it to any charity of your choice then, and send us the receipt, we'll give you your money back. I remember thinking, you don't even want the mattress back? What are the profit margins in the mattress industry like if they don't even want this thing back? And it's of so little value that it was slept with a few times and now it's not valuable anymore. And I think if we're honest, a lot of us think that way about ourselves, about sexuality, that we can equate, man, because of my sexual baggage and because of the shame that I carry, I'm not as valuable anymore. And that is certainly not how God thinks. In fact, remember the passage, Paul's addressing the sexual nature and the sex that's happening outside of marriage. And he doesn't say, don't do it because you're less valuable. Don't do it because it makes you less valuable. He says, don't do it because of how valuable you are. He says, you were bought with a price. Verse 20, that price was the life of Jesus Christ himself. No matter your sexual story, your sexual present, your sexual past, you are so valuable to Jesus himself that he would lay down his own life. He would say, that's how much you matter to me. No matter whatever shame and abuse that he wants to heal, he wants to forgive, He wants you to experience freedom from. But your story doesn't make you less valuable. Your value, Paul says to the Corinthian church, you're sleeping with prostitutes. You are so valuable. Don't sell yourself short that Jesus himself would give his life for you. God's design is beautiful. And his design ultimately is that no sexual relationship could fill a hole in every human person that exists in the heart. His design is that sex would take place in marriage and it would be beautiful and be intimate and it would be erotic and it would be awesome. But it, 
isn't the thing that could fill ultimately what every human heart and every person out there has, which is a whole God-sized created that would lead you to him, that you were designed for a relationship with him. No matter the sexual intimacy and how great or worse it is, it's that alone that is the greatest human need that every person has. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard the gospel. The gospel is this, Jesus died in your place for your sin. You didn't deserve it, but out of that tremendous love, he does what love does, it sacrifices, it gives. And he gave his life to pay for your sin and he died in your place. And then he rose again as proof that the payment was more than enough. And anyone who says, I'm trusting in that, I'm trusting in him as the payment for my sin. Not in how good I am, not in how bad I've been, and him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that's why you're here this morning, not to hear about sex. For the rest of us, God has given you the invitation and ongoing invitation to, if you're married, love and sacrifice and pursue your spouse. If you're single, protect that intimacy and save it. It's an amazing gift designed for you to experience in the context of marriage. Sex by design. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.